Let's call this meeting to order. Who is this guy standing in front of you? Uh, hey, uh, I'm, my name is Jeremy Kemp. I am newly uh, one of the pastors on staff here at Midtown. Uh, my post is over at Creve Hall. And uh, holler for Creve Hall. There's like nobody who cares about Creve Hall. That's okay. That's okay. East is way cooler. Um, yeah, when I drove in, uh, one of the guys was like, you feel way cooler just driving over this direction, don't you? And I was like, yeah, this really is. Um, so I've only been on staff since February. This is a, uh, a new call for me. Both my wife and I are from Atlanta. Uh, grew up north of Atlanta in a suburb called Roswell. And then uh, after college, went down, spent 11 years in Lakeland. Uh, Central Florida, right between Tampa and Orlando, just had the hurricane sweep right through there. And all my friends were going through all of that. And I was up here and it was like blue skies and everything was beautiful. Uh, so it did, there was that moment of feeling like I had a, some FOMO. Like I kind of wanted to be hunkered down with no power, wondering if my roof was gonna be blown off. There, there was a, a sense of, uh, of missing out, but we can uh, pray because that did end up, especially on the coast, being uh, much more destructive than I had expected. So I'm um, so thankful to be here with you today. Um, as you know, your faithful pastor, Brant, um, and his wife just had a baby. And so we're giving them a couple of weeks of rest. And, uh, and thankfully in this community, we have this, uh, this number of pastors that can fill in the gaps uh, when we need it. Because even what we're gonna be talking about today is each of us are limited. And that includes the people up here in front. Um, so, okay, let me jump in by way of introduction and, uh, and tell you a little bit about me growing up. There, there's two regrets in high school that I have. Why are you laughing? There, there, okay, there's, there's maybe two that I can say out loud, uh, regrets that I have in high school. The first is um, I've developed this love for soccer later on in life. Coached my kids who have played through, we have three kids, 12, 10, and seven. And Central Florida is big about soccer. So that was just kind of, you know, we were just kind of bred into that as we moved down. So I regret not playing soccer more uh, and being involved with that in high school. Secondly, I regret, uh, like my good friend Taylor back here, not being involved in drama. Uh, I wish that there had been, I had been more like confident in myself like that man to be able to walk into those spaces uh, and enjoy those moments with, um, with those other folks. What I did growing up instead was more solitary sports. That probably tells you something about the person who's standing up here in front of you today. Uh, from the age of seven, probably, to the age of 12, I was involved in competitive bowling. I bowled a 15 pound ball, it was a pretty big deal. Uh, and, and then in, in high school, I ran cross country. And, and both of those things are very like solitary things where it's just you versus the pins or you versus the time clock, more so than, than us collectively doing something together. And those regrets tie into what we're gonna talk about this morning because I wish that I had been involved earlier on in more things that had taught me about what it's like to exist as part of a team. Because now I feel less prepared for the team sport of what church life and church community is. 
Because the, the design of this, and I think Midtown does a beautiful job of this, but the design of this thing is not for there to be one guy on top or one girl on top and everything else sort of flows from that person. But the design of the church is everybody has a space to play. Everybody has something that they are called and gifted by God to uniquely do and bring. When, when we give church membership vows up here, something that I'll often say to the, the person or couple coming through is, our church will now be different because you are here. Because you bring something that nobody else in this room does. So uh, what we're dropping into today as we've been preaching through Acts is we're in the beginning of Acts 6 and the church has been going gangbusters over the past couple of chapters. And this is, you know, we're not sure exactly how much time has elapsed between one of these things and the next. This is maybe, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of five years after Pentecost, five years, the church has had a chance to grow. Uh, the apostles have been preaching all over the place. The last hard number we were given was 5,000. That's how big the church was. It's possible by this point that number has doubled or tripled. So church is going gangbusters and there were these 12 apostles, these 12 guys who had been called out by Jesus to serve this church, this fledgling church, but that church is now no longer fledgling. Like it is starting to grow roots and build itself up. And what we're dropping into today is it's too big for those 12 guys to handle all the things that were going on inside. So uh, I believe we have somebody who's going to come up and read Acts 6. Yes, thank you. Uh, and this is Acts 6, verses 1 through 7. I am good. Okay, there we go. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Awesome, thank you. You killed it with those names, by the way. Many people have been tripped up by those names. I bet you Creef Hall's going to get tripped up by those names. But not here at East. Mm -mm. Uh, okay. So the other thing that's great about this passage is it, it normalizes something for us. If we were to only read Acts 2 at the very end and Acts 4 at the very end, there are these beautiful pictures of, and everyone had everything in common and they were all sharing and they had, there was nothing like, it almost seemed like everything was totally perfect. They had no issues. They had no struggles. Their pets' heads weren't falling off. That was a really old movie reference. Uh, I've warned all of our people at Creve Hall that all my movie references are 15 years old. So 
there's another one for you. Um, we, could, we could leave that with this feeling of, man, my church experience today must be somehow wrong compared to if this is what it was supposed to be, I'm way off. Because I've been around my church. I know, maybe it's not like that at East. Down there at Creve Hall, like we've got our problems, we've got our struggles. There, there's things that are going wrong. There's people that are being missed and not seen and not loved and not cared for. Uh, there's conflict happening. There's issues between brothers and sisters in Christ. Are we somehow missing it? Like, have we somehow gone off course here? The beautiful thing that the beginning of Acts 6 does is it says, now in those days, there was a complaint. I thought you weren't allowed to like complain in church. You're supposed to be give thanks in all things. No, like there was an issue here. And there, then the, the issue gets peeled back and then a solution gets offered. So this both normalizes the church struggle that it is. To be in community is to struggle. It's like Paul Tripp wrote this book called Marriage, A Mess Worth Making. This is church, the mess worth making. Um, we've got our disagreements, our struggles, our hurt feelings, the things we miss, the people we miss. And though we hate that we do it, we continue to do it from the top all the way down. This both normalizes our experience and then it gives a pattern for what a healthy church can look like and a bit of a prescription of what we can do with those problems. So those are gonna be the two points. Uh, the struggle is real, church struggle is real, and then a pattern for health. The struggle is real. The, there were big church problems going on here. Um, there's, there's two groups predominantly that are being impacted by the gospel right now. You remember back in Acts 1, Jesus says that this gospel is gonna go to Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And that begins, to, that's the outline for the entire book of Acts. And so where we are now is it's gone to Jerusalem and then it's like going, it's still in Jerusalem, but it's bumping out a little bit because there's now two ethnicities that are being brought together. And that's where this complaint arises. <clears throat> So you've got two schools of Jews that are both worshiping in actually separate synagogues for some reasons that will be clear soon. You've got the Hebraic Jews and then what they're called here, the Hellenistic Jews. So another way to say that is you've got the Hebrew Jews and you've got the Greek Jews. The, the Hebraic Jews, they're schooled in Old Testament Hebrew. They're a little more old school. They're traditionalists. They've been in Jerusalem for a long time. They've got all the traditions passed from their fathers and father's fathers and father's father's fathers. And then you've got this other group, the Hellenistic, the Greek Jews, who have moved into Jerusalem from a variety of places so that they could be close to the temple, so that they could be close to the temple worship and the Jewish people and, and those traditions and all of the lovely thing, uh, things that, uh, that Judaism brought to the picture at that point. And, but they spoke Greek, there was a language barrier and then there's a cultural barrier in that there was a, they were a little more um, sort of with it in the times, they were more enculturated uh, they spoke Greek, you know, as its own language barrier thing. And so you try to put those two groups together and consider that all 12 apostles were Hebraic. All 12 apostles were from Hebrew lines, spoke Hebrew, worshiped in the Hebrew synagogues, those kinds of things. And so 
it's possible that they just weren't around this group of people very much. And in their not being around this group of people very much, there begins to be a miss. There's this, that care that Acts 2 and Acts 4 describe, there's a breakdown. And these, these Hellenistic Jewish, I'm sorry, these uh, Hellenistic widows began to not be taken care of in the daily distribution, meaning of what they were sharing, bringing in and sharing amongst each other. So it was a miss. Like it was a, it was a for real miss. The apostles had a goof. Uh, the apostles had a goof and they had to figure out what they were gonna do with it. To be at a church of thousands, that's some of the beauty of Midtown too. Like to be at a church of thousands of people requires a massive amount of organization all the way down the line. That's not what had happened yet. At this point, we had 12 guys at the very top and then everything else was sort of, they had their hands on. But in, in a very similar way, the first church that I worked at right out of college, um, I had this grand idea that I was going to be like discipled by the senior pastor. By the way, this is a probably, I don't even know, the, the sanctuary sat 2,500 and we ran three services. Um, so lots of people, so many people that I'm not even sure how many it was. And I was just this little youth ministry intern, but I thought I'm a youth ministry intern. And so I'm on staff and I bet the senior pastor is going to disciple me. This is going to be great. And I have this whole plan in my head. I'm going to walk right into Randy, different Randy, walk right into Randy's office. I'm going to stick out my hand. I'm going to say, I'm Jeremy Kemp and I'd like for you to disciple me. And then that's going to be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And then my first week on staff, I start asking, you know, around the other youth staff, which by the way, there were 15 just youth staff. And I started asking around, so like, how much time do you guys get with Randy? Like, he seems like a cool guy, but I mean, this is a big church, so there's probably a lot going on. And they started look, looked at me, you know, cross-eyed and were like, what are you talking about? Like, I've never spoken to Randy. And my initial reaction was like, you what? This, what kind of dysfunctional place Am I in? I can't believe that the senior pastor would not be discipling all the people on his staff. Now there were probably 200 people or more on his staff. And what I didn't get, and then what people helped me to understand in those first six months of working there is, Randy is charged with caring for everyone in this church, but there is no way that he can do that by himself. And so what did he do? Randy, the senior pastor, hired a youth pastor who was in charge of all the youth interns. And his name was Jeff Summers and he's a wonderful man. And he discipled both me early on in my walk with Jesus. And then my wife and I, when we first got married, he and his wife walked along with us for the first year of our marriage prior to moving to Lakeland. Randy discipled Jeff, Jeff discipled me. That's the design of the church. That's the design of this passage right here. Cause it's not possible, we're limited. It's not possible for one person to handle all of those things. So the issue then is that that has not, that structure, that organization had not happened yet. They were managing the money bags, they were preaching to the masses, they were healing the people, they were dealing with threatens, uh, threats and actual jail time. And thankfully they had both the wisdom and the character to step back, to own what they had to own and to say, okay, well, let's figure out how we can do this. How can we continue to function healthily as we grow? Here's the heart check for us. Typically we move one of two directions. We either overfunction 
or we underfunction. When we come up against, there are so many things, especially in our world today and in our life today, that are possibilities for us to be involved with. Between our jobs and our families and our friendships and our church, like you try to put all of those things on a task list, there's a reason why life hacks and to-do lists and spreadsheets and all those things are just so massively popular in our culture today because we're trying to fit it all in. But under that, there can grow a belief that I don't want to hand anything off because only me, myself, and I can be trusted to get it done. I'm the only one. And there's deep layers of control, perfectionism, distrust of others inside of us that's all playing into that picture. If you've read uh, Pete Scazzaro and Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, he says, you cannot be an emotionally healthy person and not embrace the gift of limits. The limits in our lives, what God has constrained us in, even having to sleep, having to eat, having to not go at a breakneck speed all the time or else we burn out and fry ourselves. All of those things are gifts because we're not made for that. The, the apostles, the OGs in the church weren't made for it and neither are we. But you remember, this is my go-to. I loved that Bradley Cooper movie, Limitless. Right, you remember he takes the pill and it's like the premise is you only use 15 to 20% of your brain and which I think is starting to be debunked, but you take this pill and then it opens up all 100% of your brain and now you can calculate and function and analyze and move and groove and make decisions and play the stock market and have all these great friendships and handle all of these things coming at you and you don't even need a spreadsheet. Your brain is Excel. And Ultimately, though, what happens, what's the course of that movie? Like that, that goes well for about a day. And then his life begins to implode. His relationships implode. There's murder, there's deceit, there's, there's all kinds of mess that happens when he tries to live limitless. And that's just a big picture for a small reality. The same is true with us. We can blow up our lives when we do not live within our limits. Uh, what what is motivating those? Inside of us, there are all kinds of voices. There's all kinds of voices. Those may be stemming from your upbringing, from even your own expectations, from your sinful nature, uh, from even Satan himself chirping in your ear, you are not good enough. You cannot handle all of this. You don't have what it takes. You don't matter. And what that can begin to do, that chirping inside our ears and inside our hearts can begin to motivate us in one of two ways, either to an external performance or to an internal retreat. We're either going to attack everything and say, oh yes, I can do everything. Oh yes, I can handle all of this. Or we can say, no, I can't handle all of this. And in fact, the stress is so much, I'm just going to crumple into a little ball. And it may depend on the day. We may sway between one of those and the other. Whether it's over-functioning or whether it's under-functioning, I don't have anything to contribute anyway, so why do I even try? Or I must do everything if anything is going to work out well for me. Where do those come from? Where do those voices inside our ears and inside our hearts come from? Why are they so loud? And why in particular seasons can they seem to grow even louder? Where are you this morning? 
Are those voices quiet for you right now? Are they loud for you right now? What is chirping in your ears that is telling you you are not good enough, that you cannot handle what's in front of you, that it's too much? Internally, we exist as functional atheists. Internally, where these, where this, these voices come from is from a belief, ultimately, functionally, God does not exist. I am the only chief actor in my life. And because that's true, it is up to me. If it's to be, it's up to me. Nobody else. And again, that can either send us into anxiety or into retreat. It can, how then did the 12 apostles have this natural inclination to just stop, to own it? Like the complaint comes to them, the 12 immediately summon more people. Like when we get called out, we don't normally summon more people around and say, hey, help me figure this out. Usually it's a, it's a silent retreat. It's maybe one or two buddies or wife or husband or whoever that you're talking to. And, and then you kind of chirp about it a little bit. You feel a little better about yourself. And then you either attack or you just go about your day. They had the wisdom to call this whole group of people around and to say, hey, I don't think we can actually do this anymore. I think we actually have to open our hands and trust someone other than myself to get some work done. How do they do that? If you remember back in Acts 4, uh, the crowd saw the apostles' boldness. And there's a little phrase there that is so key in our walks with Jesus. When the crowd saw the apostles' boldness, they recognized they had been with Jesus. The only thing that will begin to settle our hearts, to settle our functional anxiety, I'm sorry, our functional atheism, to settle our anxiety, is to be with Jesus and realize that he is limitless. I am limited. He is limitless. What, and literally, the apostles had walked with him they had seen his amazing limitlessness, his amazing limitless power, his limitless love, his limitless wisdom to be able to, to parse out exactly what he should do in any given moment, in any given situation, telling a woman who is, uh, who's been bleeding for a long, long time, yes, come, now is the time. When you've got another guy who's, who, whose daughter just died, who's like, will you please come now? My daughter is dying. And he somehow knows in that moment to say, wait to the urgent of my daughter is dying to say yes to this woman right in front of him who he could have gone back to tomorrow. But there's something in the wisdom and discernment and power of Jesus that is able to parse through every one of those things. They had been with him. And being with Jesus convinces us that we are not him. In fact, that, that we fall very short of being him. In fact, that we functionally live as if he doesn't exist and only when we are with him more and more that that begins to, to go from head to heart. The, the truth of that, of who Jesus is and what he has done begins to sit on top of our heart. And as our hearts break in the difficulties of life, then that begins to flow in. They had been with Jesus. They had also seen Jesus not only be limitless, they had seen Jesus limit himself. Jesus had constrained himself. Love by definition 
constrains itself. You can't love everybody all the time. But you can love the people right in front of you. You can love the people that God right now has called you to. And for Jesus, in his limitlessness, he loved the whole world in that way. He loved his church by dying for her and rising again. And then saying in that rest that he now gives us to say, I know you live as functional atheists. I know you forget God all the time. I know your heart is all over the place. And I'm here to say, peace, be still and know I'm God. And when Jesus begins to approach us and, and take down some of those guardrails in our hearts, then a new reality begins to open up to us that I really, I'm not everything to everyone. I can't be. I can't please all these different people in my life all the time. Ministry has been called uh, disappointing people at a rate that they can handle. I, I can't, as a pastor, please everyone all the time. You can't, as a husband, wife, friend, son, daughter, employee, cannot please everyone all the time in every way. You are limited. But in the same way that Jesus constrained himself to us, his people, there is a constraining that you can now do free because he's caring for you. He's already given you the yes and amen that he received at his baptism. When God the Father looks at God his son and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, before he did any ministry, now over you today, because of his life, death, and resurrection, he over you says, this is my beloved child, and I'm well pleased based on what you did not do, based on nothing you have done or will do. But that begins to settle our hearts and give us a rest that we can then thrive in to say, what has God given me to do? I can't do everything. What has he given me to do? How has he called me to love him and other people right here, right now, today? So uh, to close up, let me end with a story. Uh, that same large church that I worked at when I was cutting my teeth in ministry and kind of figuring out what, uh, what life in ministry without just going completely bonkers or burning out could look like. Uh, it was probably a year in and we had somewhere around a thousand. I was just 15 youth staff, half were middle school, half were high school. Uh, I was on the high school side. There were probably a thousand high schoolers running around. And I just had the, the sort of breakdown moment one day in a staff meeting to be like, guys, there's so many kids running around. Like, how are we supposed to care for all of these kids? And then this older seasoned veteran youth guy leaned over to me and goes, equip the saints, baby. That has become a mantra since then. He was referring to Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to do what? To do all the works of ministry? No, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Every person in this room called by Jesus is a saint. That means that uniquely you have been given something to do here. Good works created before the foundation of the world, world for you to do here and now, constraining yourself, loving in a way that only you can love those that are right in front of you. What does that look like? What does that look like for East? 
What does that look like for Midtown as a whole as we exist in, that, in, in this city? What does it look like for you in your daily life? What is it that only you can do? What is it that no one else is able to do to love God and love others in the same way that you are? And yes, this is functionally the beginning of, we, we go back to this passage when we think about uh, the election of church deacons and sort of the roles of elder and deacon, but these principles go way further and more far reaching than this as well. And it takes the spirit, it takes solid character, it takes collective wisdom, all this is in verse three and four, and trusted leadership to help figure that out. So don't hear me saying, go figure this out, and then go work it out all by yourself. But this is a community project that we're, part of the way you figure out what you're good at and what you're gifted in is other people affirming you. Part of the way you figure out what you're good at and gifted in is by trying stuff out and then seeing where did my heart sing and where did it feel like death? And all of those are very unique to you and what God's calling you to do. So in, and I'm not just talking about serving in kid town, and playing music up here on Sunday morning. I'm talking about your whole life as being leveraged for the sake of loving God and loving other people. Uh, so how are you gifted? What are your passions? What are even your life circumstances right now that God is constraining you in certain ways and pointing you in certain directions? Assessing some of those questions can start to ask or can start to answer that question of what is God calling me to do right now? And maybe the key question to, to say it the other way is what are you saying no to right now? Where are you embracing your limits? And saying, no, that's God's job or that's somebody else's job, that's not my job. Because this over here is what God's calling me to. I'm gonna have to say no to some really good stuff so that I can say yes to what is unique to me. And when you do, the church, your family, your friendships, your city grows in health because what kind of city do we live in? What kind of even the access that we can have to a limitless world right through this little portal right here? You flip open Facebook or Instagram or whatever and there's all of these, I should be doing that hobby and I should be doing that cool thing with my kids and I should be doing that awesome thing. Why don't I have that talent? And it just feeds that limitless desire inside of ourselves. But as we come to the table, we have the opportunity to not only know it with our minds, but to taste the limitations, the constraining love of Jesus. And so as you came in today, uh, you should have received one of the little communion lunchable things. Uh, so you can go ahead and take those out. Let's not take it quite yet though. Uh, in the book of Hebrews, uh, the writer says that Jesus's blood speaks a better word over you. What are the condemning words in your ears right now? You're not good enough. You don't have what it takes. Try harder, strive, strive, strive. Jesus's blood speaks a better word over you today. And so I invite you as you eat and as you drink, would you hear and feel in your ears and in your heart, you are loved, you are cherished, you are kept, you are empowered, you are gifted, you are sent. His death has secured those blessings for us. 
we can live out of well done, good and faithful servant. In Christ, every one of you will hear that when you meet him one day. No matter how many times you drop the ball, no matter how many times you blow up in anger, no matter how many times you retreat in stress from the things that God is calling you to do, you will meet him and he will say, well done. Enter into my joy. And we can carry that rest that we will experience into today. So on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he says, often as you take this, do it in remembrance of me. Don't take yet. And after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, a new way to know for sure we are good. And as often as you do that, do it in remembrance of him. So I'm gonna invite the band up um, and just ask you these couple of questions as the band uh, begins. One, have you come to a place where you have embraced your limits? Have you ever come to a place in your life where you have said, my, my schedule, my ability, the responsibilities that I have, uh, the sin that I carry around, the guilt that I feel, the shame that I hold, all of those things are too much for me. I can't hold them anymore. Jesus, will you please hold them? Will you hold my life? Will you hold my sins? Will you hold my guilt and shame? Will you hold all my responsibilities? And will you take those things and carry me along with you as I abide in you? If that's true of you today, then this cup and this bread is for you. If that's not true of you, I invite you to consider that today. Is this the day that he is finally inviting you and that your heart is finally open enough that you can walk into that invitation? Ask, seek, knock, the door is open. Today's the day of salvation. And so if that is true of you, I invite you to walk into that door today, uh, but to hold off from taking communion and then talk to somebody, talk to an elder uh, and grab somebody on the side and explain what the Lord is doing in your heart. Uh, and folks around here can walk with you through that. Uh, secondly, this is a community table. Uh, this is not just an isolated, but again, church is a team sport. And so the question today is, are you in community with other believers? Do other people know you? Are they affirming you? Are they challenging you? It doesn't mean you have to be a member of this church, but does some group of Christians in some place know you, know your stuff and are walking alongside you in limiting yourself to only what you can do? If those two things are true, then feed, drink, eat deeply uh, and rest. Take a big deep breath as you eat and as you drink knowing that his rest is yours in Christ. And out of that rest, you can serve your pants off. So let's pray, and then we're gonna continue to sing. So Father, thank you that you haven't made us to do everything. Thank you that you are wise enough to know that if, if we had greater capabilities, we would just use them for ourselves. Thank you that our limits point us to you, the limitless one. Uh, and I pray that we would rest deeply today as we commune with you to know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We lift our lives up to you and open them to you. Do your will. We pray in Christ. Amen.